Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. In yesterday's devotion, we saw this fulfillment of Isaiah 53, uh, verse 4. Now, a large crowd is going to gather around Jesus, and a young scribe is going to come up and say something to Jesus. And Jesus' response is shocking and often misunderstood, but as is the case, often just an illumination of the original historical cultural context, just exposition of the text, uh, reveals what's really happening here. Here's Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man, that's capitalized here, has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. All right, so this one guy walks up and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. We just finished the, the book of Ruth before we started the gospel of Matthew and we see this beautiful proclamation of loyalty from Ruth in chapter one. And, and it, seems, it seems to kind of echo that. I'm gonna follow you wherever you go. But then Jesus, Jesus responds with a pushback. Look, foxes have places to live. Birds have places to live. But I, the son of man, have, have nowhere to even lay my head. So he's pushing back. He's testing his faith. And then this other disciple says, first, let me go bury my father. Jesus' response seems cold. It seems harsh. Let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So let's talk about the multiple things that are happening here. For one thing, every time a large crowd followed Jesus, Jesus would thin the crowd out. He would, he would try to diminish the number of people within that crowd. And he, he, would, he did it to great success. He speaks to this scribe whose intentions seem so sweet, so kindly. It wasn't the invitation that Jesus gave the disciples, come follow me. Rather, it was this proclamation on behalf of the disciple, I'm going to follow you. And then Jesus responds by pushing back with this warning. Do you know what it's going to cost you? You're going to have less than a bird. You're going to have less than a fox. It was not for absolute lack of resources that the disciples and Jesus lived this way. This was part of the nature of the Messiah's ministry. It was not that they lived absolutely abject, you know, poverty-stricken lives together. It was that Jesus was going about the work of ministry. He was moving about town to town. He was, he was speaking in Bethany where he would stay with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and he would minister in Capernaum where they tried to shove him off a cliff. You know, it was not exactly, it was not exactly the, kind of, the, the kind of ministry trip that would rack up rewards points to get you diamond elite status with Hilton in the president's circle with Hertz Renekar. <laughs> it, was, it was rough, man. This was rough. And Jesus' pushback is right. Uh, there, it, it's, not, it, it's not an absolute requirement that you live a poverty-stricken life to do ministry, but a willingness to endure poverty, I think, is a requirement. There's no biblical requirement that says, like, if you're going to do ministry, especially if you're going to be a, be a pastor, for example, you've got to be poor. Uh, that's something the Catholic Church straight up made up. The vow of poverty is never found in the Bible. Rather, we see guys like Paul uh, insist on funding his own way through his his tent-making business. We also see these clear instructions. See to it that some that that, that 
pastors are paid well. See our teachings in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus and 1 Corinthians, particularly chapter 9. However, you do have to be willing. You do have to be willing to endure it because you might, you will, I have, it happens. This was a heads up. It's, it's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. This flies in the face of modern-day prosperity teaching, wherein people are following Jesus for what they can get out of him. They, they view Jesus like this, you know, this big candy machine, and they just follow him, give me blessings. Where you go, I'll go because it's nice there, <laughs> as opposed to where you go, I'll go because you're Lord. Do you see the critical, critical, critical distinction here? This scribe had good intentions. This other disciple asked something that seems totally reasonable, particularly in our culture. In our culture, when I say our culture, I'm referring to American culture at large. The way that we do funerals is relatively fast. It's remarkably efficient. It's almost machine-like. It's an industry and it's profitable uh, and it's highly effective. When I was in seminary, we actually got to go behind the scenes at a funeral home. I don't know how they let us go in here, but we even got to see like the cremation machine. It was weird. It was creepy. I think it was mostly because that professor of that of that pastoral ministry class was curious <laughs> and he used the class as his ticket to go behind the scenes because having done multiple funerals there, he'd never been in the back rooms. So it's it, it's crazy, man. We're able to, you know, go in and out and in a given funeral home facility have like several funerals happening in the same day, even two or three, depending on the size of the facility, funerals happening concurrently with one another. Burial plots are allocated well and land is amassed in such a way that you strategically don't have multiple burials side by side with one another. The scheduling is, is a, a well-oiled machine and uh, the, the, the caretakers who, who see to the facility do a great job. It's a, it's a profitable industry. Undertakers make a lot of money. Uh, funeral home directors are paid well. And uh, man, it's, it, they're, they're even like these massive conglomerates, you know, uh, like Woodlawn that owns multiple, you know, cemeteries across the U.S. And uh, wow, I mean, we will show up and we'll have the uh, wake the day before. And then, you know, you got to clear out at a certain time because there's another wake after your wake. And then the following day, you've got this amount of time from this window to this window. And then the service comes about. We've got these really, you know, we've really perfected the hearse over the years and the pallbearer ceremony, and then it loads in and it loads out, and it's easy. The casket even carries itself, and the machine even lowers it down to the ground really well. I mean, like, we are really skilled at this thing, and we think of a funeral as a two-day affair. Three, if you count all the time that the family spends at grandmother, or grandmother, uh, grandmother and grandfather's house the day before, or maybe lingers after. In the original context, however, there was no such industry. Uh, it was not an enterprise. It was a cultural distinction, and it was a year-long mourning time. Particularly if the father died, the oldest son was expected to, after that year was up, have this second burial where he would dispose of his father's bones. He was like, he was asking for a year off, basically. And what Jesus said was right. Let the dead bury their own dead. There, there seems to be kind of an idolatry of the dead within pagan cultures, this deification of the dead, where long after people have died, they seem to kind of rule what happens in their family, even in their village. Their whole town will rally around the corpse. It's a, it's a common thing in, in cities and towns that are isolated, have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and have this, have this weird fixation with death. Christians view death as, you know, uh, man, 
to get to be with Jesus, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I mean, that's graduation day. That's the way that Christians view death. Congratulations, uh, you've finished your work here. You get to go be with God. And then we use your death as a reason to get together and have amazing food. And, you know, we share the gospel so that other people likewise at their funerals too, they, they would then also uh, give us reason to, to celebrate on your behalf. We mourn and we grieve, we weep with those who are weeping. I don't mean to diminish the sadness that, that surrounds a funeral, but within the Christian world, if you spend an entire year of your life at a funeral and in a burial process, you have then spent an entire year not doing the ministry that God called you to do. Uh, a year seems like, uh, particularly if, if, it's the, if it's the son grieving for the father, like you as a son expect to bury your father. It's probably what makes it so tragic when a father has to bury his son because it's a reversal of what was expected, what you knew would come along. Like you didn't, you weren't caught off guard by this prospect. And so, uh, wow, what, what Jesus emphasized is this, this ministry to the living. Let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me. I'm fascinated. This young scribe said, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. But the invitation, follow me, goes to the guy who actually said, first, let me go bury my father. Let me go tend to human tradition. Let me go focus on the dead for a year. Uh, let me finish this ritual that was never prescribed in the Old Testament. And then Jesus actually gives him the invitation, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I know what it is to be taken out by grief. You know, um, I didn't spend an, an adequate amount of time grieving the death of my son, Aiden. You know, if anything, I tried to use alcohol to anesthetize that pain, ended up prolonging and kind of procrastinating my grief. Uh, I, so take it from somebody who's done this poorly the first time, by all means, you know, let the Holy Spirit of God give you peace let emotion run its course and give proper regard for those who have passed away. But don't let it consume your life. As a Christian, you believe in the gospel. And believing in the gospel means you believe in eternal life. And so we don't, as Paul instructs, grieve as those who have no hope. I've done a lot of funerals myself, and I've seen the marked difference between those who grieve with hope and those who grieve without hope. And the contrast is stark. Okay, I've never been to such bleak affairs as I have those of funerals for people who never proclaimed Christ or proclaimed to be proclaimed antipathy against Christ. But we as Christians, we know that we'll be reunited with our loved ones. Think about Martha at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11. By the way, she made that proclamation but without the book of Revelation yet. So we as Christians, we grieve differently. For us, death is different. Take the time, let grief flow. As your friends grieve, you weep with them. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. This is part of what the church body does. But see to it that we don't spend all of our days in grief in a way that we never move on to life, which God has called us to like Anna and Simeon in the temple, we will continually wait until we have fulfilled the purpose that God has called us to. Like Simeon and Anna, we know when our moment has come and we get to go and fulfill our purpose and then be with Jesus and die happily. Like we'll know when that time has come. Uh, when, when God has accomplished through your life and ministry here, Christian, you get to go and be with 
Jesus. Sometimes that catches us off guard as to how early that is, how quickly that happens. But for the remainder, we're here for a reason. The reason is not to grieve the dead until we die ourselves. Jesus's calling is eternal, as is our reunion with those who are in Christ forevermore. See to it that our perspective is accurate according to what Jesus gave right here in this text. Also, offer this as an explanation when this comes up. Jesus' seemingly harsh response was actually freeing for that man. It's beautiful.